0: Now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, you alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Our journey through the season of Lent began really earlier last week on Ash Wednesday, but today is the first Sunday in Lent, so we're still kind of getting things going uh, this morning. If you are with us on Ash Wednesday, that service, it's, it's one of our weirdest services um, that we do in the Anglican Church. We know that. But it takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. And when we look at Genesis, we see God the Creator, overflowing with generosity, creativity, and love, making everything that has been made. And the pinnacle of that creation uh, is you and me. We see God creating human beings And as we read the book of Genesis, we see that our origins are breathtakingly noble, yet very ordinary. Uh, We're made in the very image of Almighty God, yet we're made from the dust, the dust that we put on our foreheads on Ash Wednesday. We read the book of Genesis and see that we're made for fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, That there's a God-ordained role in his good creation for us, his humans. But just as soon as the story starts, it runs off a cliff. The tempter comes. The trickster woos. The forbidden fruit catches their eyes and our first parents fell. They doubted the goodness of God. They doubted the goodness of his word. The sufficiency of his ways, and they grasped, and they reached, and they clawed, and were cursed. Our New Testament lesson, uh, Romans 5, that incredible passage in Romans 5, retells the entire story this way, therefore, just as sin has come into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Remember that you were dust. And to dust you shall return. That's a starting point for Lent. That's a compass for uh, this season. And that's why we had the story of the fall from Genesis 2 and 3 as our Old Testament lesson. Uh, We're going to actually look at Psalm 51 this morning. But it occurs to me that the fall is the context for Psalm 51. It's really the context for uh, almost the entire Bible. And I want to focus on Psalm 51, but we'll get there in a little bit of a roundabout way. Um, in our, uh, You can get Psalm 51 in your normal Bible. We also have kind of a poetic version uh, in the Book of Common Prayer. That's what's printed uh, there in your bulletin. And in the Book of Common Prayer, it has a very simple title, uh, Miserere me Deus, Latin for have mercy on me, O God. Um, And I think they put that there so we know the Latin, because if you look that up, there are some uh, really of the most sublime music the church has ever made uh, for this music, uh, for this text. If you look up uh, Allegri, you'll be blown away by um, what we do uh, as those made in the image of God to give voice uh, to our prayer. Um, But there's another traditional additional heading that occurs in most Bibles and if you don't have this, Psalm 51 doesn't make sense. Or at least you don't get the full picture. That additional traditional heading is this a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. One scholar says there's no consensus as to when the headings were added to the Psalms, but certainly well before the time of Jesus, Psalm 51 was seen as the prayer of penitence, which David offered after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah. That awful story is told in 2 Samuel. Um, I'll refresh your memory a little bit. David, uh, the king, had remained in his palace instead of going out like he was supposed to, uh, to battle. And as he's in his palace, he's not where he should be, and he sees Bathsheba, And like Adam and Eve in the garden with the forbidden fruit, she was pleasing to the eye. And he plucked and took what was not his. And he spiraled down and he actually had her husband murdered to try and cover up his sin. And it occurs to me that this is just the pattern that begins in Genesis 2 and 3. Adam and Eve, the first of us, when confronted with temptation, they fall and the consequences are tragic. David, probably the best of us in the Old Testament, he's tempted and he gives into the horrific sin and falls, and the consequences are tragic. He does things that we would say seem unforgivable. But that's where our gospel lesson actually came in in Matthew 4. I just want you to see this thread. Uh, the response to temptation by Adam and Eve is they give in and they fall. The response to temptation uh, by David is he gives in and he falls. The response to temptation by Jesus, he doesn't give in. And He doesn't fall. And he begins winning a victory of righteousness and obedience. Jesus is called the second Adam. Jesus is called great David's greater son. He is tempted, but he doesn't fall. And he's actually tempted at a point of weakness. The enemy brings everything he can to bear on Jesus, and yet he is still triumphant. So he reverses that pattern of sin and death and begins a new work of righteousness in life. That's what Romans 5 tells us all about. Now, um, there's a fancy theological term for what I just described. It's called recapitulation. That's your SAT word for today. Uh, recapitulation. I understand, actually, in counseling, there is a different uh, nuance of that term. Um, But I actually didn't understand the theological term fully until I was playing a video game with my son Noah when he was a little boy. Um, We had a Nintendo Wii. Anyone ever played on a Nintendo Wii? Okay, this may go better than the last service. (laughs) I'm excited about this. All right, so we had a Nintendo Wii, and we like to play this game called Super Mario Brothers. Um, I'm guessing even if you don't know anything about video games, you have heard of the Mario Brothers. Am I right? All right. So uh, we will be playing Super Mario Brothers, and this iteration of that game on the Nintendo Wii had something called Super Mode. I think I'm going to get the details right here. Now, Super Mode, bear with me. Super Mode kicked in when you were completely frustrated and utterly defeated. See, if you were trying to beat a level and you died eight times, not once, not twice, eight times, uh, then you had the option to activate super mode. And here's what would happen. If you took that option, the level would start over. But instead of you controlling everything, a magic super Luigi would appear. And he would go through the whole level and he would do it perfectly. He would show you exactly where to jump and hit and move and dodge. He did the level uh, to perfection and he would complete the level. And then it was interesting because you had a couple options. Um, You would watch what Super Mode Luigi had done and you could go play the next level because he beat it for you. The victory had been won. You could keep going or you could go back and you could play that level and now you actually knew what to do. You had seen how to do things and you even actually believed for the first time that that level could be beaten. Now, I'm not trying to be uh, flippant, or irreverent talking about a video game. This is deadly life or death stuff, temptation, sin, and death. But I actually think it's a great picture of the entire story of the Bible and of our own spiritual lives. Because when we try to play the game on our own, we die. (laughs) Time after time after time after time. We think we can do this. Nope, that didn't work. We die time after time after time. We see temptation. We think we know what to do. No, it triumphs again and again and again. From Adam to Moses to David to you and to me, we cannot move on or move forward or defeat that great enemy on our own. And I don't have to convince you of this, do I? that we struggle with temptation and sin, that we do the things that we don't want to do. You know what this is like in your own life. When you give in to temptation, when you indulge in sin, when you had hoped you wouldn't. It even sworn it would never happen again. But it did. And it does. Our best efforts are simply not good enough. But at just the right time, Jesus comes on the scene like super mode Luigi, if you will, playing the level for us, beating the level for us, showing us how to beat it and that it could be beaten, confronting sin, death, and the devil, unleashing a new pattern of life, eternal life, of righteousness, of obedience, of God's glory. The good news of the gospel, friends, on this first Sunday of Lent is that Jesus has won the victory for us we can never win for ourselves. The proper response to that good news is to believe and to repent, to rethink how we are doing things, what we think is working, to reorient ourselves to the way of Jesus and God's best for us. I think particularly when we see how temptation has tripped up you and me, how it's triumphed over us, when we have a sense of our own sinfulness, which the Bible says is God's kindness. That God's kindness leads to repentance when he cuts us to the quick and we realize what we have done. When that happens, well, friends, there's a great opportunity because we have the opportunity then to be honest about our sin, our struggle, our temptation, and to repent and return to the Lord. We're not left with it on our own. We don't have to hide like Adam and Eve. We don't have to make things worse and try to cover it up like David. Now, David, uh, his sin is huge. His sin is so big. But his repentance is also huge. His repentance is so big. And he leaves us this gift, Psalm 51, this blueprint of repentance. And I would just say that this Psalm, we're going to talk about it in a minute, But this gives us a tool that if you pick it up and use it during this Lenten season, or really at any time, doesn't have to be Lent, but we're in Lent now. You can take this tool and it will transform your life through repentance. Let's talk about Psalm 51. Um, Psalm 51 is the quintessential psalm of Lent, of repentance, of penitence. Um, I've been reading Esau Macaulay's new book on Lent. I would recommend it. It is little and it is fantastic. He says, Lent is inescapably about repenting. Repentance is a change in direction, a spirit empowered turning around. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, um, who you may know, she is an Episcopal priest. She's an amazing preacher and theologian. Um, She actually points out that the subject of uh, fasting and spiritual practices in general Um, it's really become a thing. There's a whole cottage industry of how to do spiritual stuff. And Ash Wednesday and Lent, oftentimes our sermons will center on urging those practices. Do all these different things. Here's the buffet you can pick from. (laughs) She said, rather, that's not the gospel. If you want the essence of Lent, she says, just read Psalm 51 with all your heart as God grants it over and over again. Now, I'm going to highlight a few things about this psalm, but the goal is not so much that we understand it or explain it or dissect it as to pray it, uh, to hear, to read, to learn, to mark, to inwardly digest this psalm and then take it with you and use it. If you want this Lent to be fruitful, If you want to draw near to the Lord, if you want to rekindle and revive your spiritual life, the church commends Psalm 51 to be prayed honestly and honestly repeatedly. (laughs) We need it. The first two verses are the cry of King David caught at his worst. And they give us words in the midst of our sins, great and small. Here's what he writes. Have mercy upon me, O God, in your great goodness just pause there all of our repentance all of the conviction of sin every time we turn to the lord we don't do it filled with shame and sorrow that's part of it but that's not the whole story this whole process happens in the context of the great goodness of god that's why we can turn to him even when things are a mess And it's good news because we know that he will forgive. Look what he says. According to the multitude of your mercies, wipe away my offenses. All those sins and temptations and failures that we feel acutely, we actually have someone to take them to. We have something to do with them. Look at verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. That's our prayer. The psalm continues, verse three. For I acknowledge my faults and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless in uh, your judgment. That's how to confess our sins. We get gut level honest about it. Uh, Tim Keller, who is the retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, points out here that there are many ways to cover up our sin. We may minimize or justify it by blaming circumstances and other people. Look at what we just read in Genesis. Oh, that woman you gave me. That was the problem. We minimize, we justify, we pass blame. What Tim Keller says, real repentance first admits sin as sin. It takes full responsibility for it. True confession and repentance begins when blame shifting ends. He writes, just as real repentance begins only where blame shifting ends, so it also begins where self-pity ends. And we start to turn from our sin out of love for God rather than mere self-interest. In other words, David is not just sorry he got caught. He's sorry that he sinned. And he's sorry for what he has done. And he's going to agree with God uh, about it. Now, verse 4, you might have read this, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And if you were like me, you were going, um, Uriah would like a word? Bathsheba would like a word? What do you mean against you only have I sinned? Um, I would just suggest to you that if we're thinking about uh, the world of King David, um, that this is not minimizing the harm he's done to his fellow humans. Um, At that time, if you were a king, um, (laughs) you could do no wrong. You did whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, with whoever you wanted. And it was called good, because that's how being a king worked in the ancient world. No, the good news here, the good news for the poor and the oppressed, the good news is that even the king is subject to God's law. That's against you only have I sinned. Um, The king has to be accountable. There is a higher authority that we can appeal to. And so David names his action as sinful, evil. The psalm continues and basically says that his only hope is for God to mercifully, graciously do a work in his life. Something he cannot do for himself. Create in me a clean heart, O God, And renew a right spirit within me. We can't clean our own hearts. We can't create clean hearts. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's a work of the new covenant where God comes and brings uh, new life and grace and mercy poured out upon us by his Holy Spirit. Um, And while that seems good, we all want to be cleansed. We all want to be forgiven. We all want a clean conscience. This psalm tells us it might not be pleasant that there is a scalding, scraping, cleansing work that has to happen deep within each one of us. Verse seven, you shall purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You shall wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I don't know if you've ever seen a hyssop branch. Um, These grow in the the Middle East. These hyssop branches, they are uh, filled with twigs and sticks and thorns. If I was to wash you with hyssop, It would be the worst loofah of your life. It's not pleasant, but it's good. And it's needed. So I wonder this morning, do you want to be clean? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Or, if we're honest, we just want to keep God at arm's length. Because if the Lord purges you with His, you'll be clean, but it's gonna hurt. You've gotta be gut level honest with yourself and what you've done. And probably in the process, you're gonna find out things you didn't even know you had done. As you see the depth of your own sin and temptation. But if you're honest about it, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find the great goodness of God. You'll find the multitude of his mercy. You'll find life eternal. But if we want to be clean and forgiven, made whole, we can't hide anymore like Adam and Eve. We can't pretend, cover up, or make excuses. We certainly can't clean ourselves up. (laughs) We come to the Lord in the midst of our mess and say, will you do something? I can't do anything else. I can't make this work. Um, I've actually been following over the last few weeks uh, this thing happening at Asbury University. Maybe you've seen this in the news. Um, some are calling it a revival, some are calling it an outpouring. I'm not as concerned with how you want to label it, but it looks like some young people um, are getting serious about the Lord and He is uh, meeting them and their seriousness. And He is bringing uh, conviction and He is bringing repentance and He is bringing joy. Um, I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic when I hear these things. Um, I remember when I was uh, in seminary, there was a, a, a revival in Toronto and people were barking. And I was like, are you kidding me? What do you mean people are barking? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. That's not in the Bible. But in this instance, what I've heard is people are being convicted of sin and they're repenting. And they're finding joy, and there's a peace and a calm to it. And I go, huh, <laughs> that could be a work of the Lord. Now, we, we're going to take any good work, and we'll, we'll mix in and mess it up, won't we? Um, we're really skillful at that. Um, but I've been following what's happening. Um, I've been seeing what's going on. Um, I've told a few people, by the way, if, if that's intriguing to you, that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives... Um, Friend, you don't have to go to Kentucky. You don't have to chase a revival. The Holy Spirit is right here, right now. I mean, if you want to have God do a work of repentance and forgiveness and joy in your life, the church says, hey, here's Lent. If you take it seriously, if you get honest with your sin and what has happened, um, what would that look like? To accept this invitation for a revival, a renewal of repentance, even in the secrecy of your own heart. To get serious about faith, to pursue something beyond normal Christianity. And while the reports from Asbury have been encouraging, it's been fascinating to follow the commentary. I don't know if you've seen any of this. Um, Is it real? Is it hype? Is it a revival or an outpouring? Well, they're worshiping continuously. Is that what we need to do? Is that the formula? No, if we kept this worship service going, Miss Holly would show up with the kids. (laughs) They're college kids. It's a unique season of life. It's all right. It's not a formula. It's not a prescription. It's a gift that the Lord has seemingly poured out. But I wonder, why do we ask those questions? I don't know what's happening up there, but I think we ask some of those questions to keep it at arm's length. Because we can look at what's happening there and we can see repentance and renewal and maybe even revival, and we go, hey, do we even want that? In our own hearts, in our own lives, or are we just content to be on the sidelines as spectators and commentators and pundits, assessing if we think it's real? I don't know what's happening there, but I know I want the real work of the Lord in my life. Don't you? I'm reminded of uh, an encounter that Jesus has in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, if you remember this, there's a pool of Bethesda, um, and it's this place of healing. The waters, they they, they were rumored to, to have these healing properties when an angel would stir the waters, and there's this man, he's paralyzed. He's been sitting there for a long, long time. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, do you want to be healed? Seems odd. I mean, this is where the healing happens. He's right next to it. What an odd question. He's next to the pool, but he hasn't gotten in, has he? I read an article this week by uh, a guy named Trevin Wax. He's looking at the Asbury thing, but he just puts his finger on the pulse of our questions. It says, is it possible to say you want renewal, you want a work of the Lord, but deep down, to not want the discomfort God's presence might bring? It's possible to sing songs every Sunday while nursing grudges and bitterness you don't want to be delivered from. He says it's possible to enjoy the division of the church. Your theological tribalism or the secret sins you harbor or take twisted comfort in your own complacency to become deadened to the church's decline, apathetic regarding the future. He says the spirit of God is not safe. The Lord blows where he wills. The paralytic comes up with all sorts of excuses why his healing is impossible. No one helps me. I can't get down to the water. I'm all alone. He says we do the same in our own way. Ah, The church is too messed up. It's impossible for God to work in this place. I mean, if he were going to work, it wouldn't look this way. It wouldn't happen like that. Look how crazy those people are. If God were to move, he'd do it differently. That's keeping things at arm length. The question remains, do you want this? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made clean? Would you like to be well? I wonder how many of us are here at church like that paralyzed man, hoping to be healed, clearly in need of healing, showing up all the time. He, He was there a lot. Lingering beside the waters instead of getting in or asking for help. So close and yet not all in. You see, friends, the season of Lent is often called a spring cleaning for our souls. It's about repentance and cleansing of ending up whiter than snow. But it takes the courage to first be gut level honest about our sin. Um, I want you to know if you get honest about your sin, there's going to be probably some pain. You're going to get purged with hyssop. You're going to get scraped clean. Do you want to pursue that? Do you think it's worth it? Or do you just want to sit by the pool for a long time this Lent while others jump in and find healing, renewal in life? Will this be another Lent of going through the motions? Or will you go out into the wilderness with Jesus? I believe there's an invitation right now Before you, before me, before our church, an invitation in the name of the church during the season of Lent to experience renewal and repentance. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our God, grant us grace to desire you with our whole heart. That desiring you, we may seek you. Seeking you, we may find you. That finding you, we may love you. That loving you, we may hate those sins from which you have delivered us and are freeing us from. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.